Again, we're privileged this morning to have with us uh, Reverend Garnet Slatton. Uh, he comes to us via Nashville, where he is also on faculty at Vanderbilt University. So, thanks for being here with us. Good morning. Thanks to all of you for inviting me here um, and giving me such a warm welcome this morning. It's a, it's a very welcoming church. Um, and uh, uh, that's a big deal. <laughs> that's a big deal. So um, feel good about that. And, um, and feel good about having a pastor like Randy Jenkins. Uh, I've known Randy for a long time. And um, he is one of the people I most admire and respect. Question before we begin. Um, Paul writes in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I know I fall into that category. Are there any others who fall into the category of all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory? Well, so many people didn't raise their hands. I'm worried about you. <laughs> well, yeah. So the people who raised their hands and especially those who didn't, um, this parable that Jesus gives us today and uh, uh, the, the sermon that comes out of it um, is for you. Jesus kind of says in this parable, hey, you know, we walk the straight and narrow, but because we're all sinners, we tend to fall off of that either to one side or the other. And in this parable today, he describes the two ditches that we tend to fall into. Um, the, one is the religious ditch, the other is the irreligious ditch. And then he applies the gospel to both groups. So I want to say as we get going here that it's important to find yourself in the story. You know, we're going to tend to fall into one or the other of these ditches. And I just want to ask you to kind of, as, as you listen, figure out which ditch you tend to fall into. Um, and I also want to ask you to think about it for yourself and not for your husband or your wife or anybody else that you know. Our text this morning comes from Luke 15. The first couple of verses say this. They sort of set the stage. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The Pharisees and scribes, on the other hand, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus goes into three stories. We're going to skip the first two and move on to the third and probably most famous one where he says in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. If you look at Jesus' audience here, it's been laid out for us. On the one hand, there's tax collectors and sinners, the irreligious people, the wayward people, the people who are seeking their own path to fulfillment, the people who've largely rejected tradition and the religion that they'd learned and they, in turn, had been rejected by the religious people of the day. Then there's the other group, the Pharisees and scribes, who were very religious, loved tradition, study scripture all day long, obey it fastidiously, and were the kind of people that were there whenever the synagogue doors were open. But I want you to look at how each group responded to Jesus. The irreligious wayward sinners flocked to him. 
And the religious, the, the ones that you would expect to be his biggest fans, reject him. I guess that's because Jesus isn't about religion. <laughs> He's about the gospel. And he uses this parable to speak to both these two types of people. It's the parable we commonly know as a prodigal son. But Jesus doesn't focus on one son. In fact, the parable began by saying there was a man who had two sons. And in this parable, Jesus speaks to those irreligious wayward folks through the younger brother, the one that we're more accustomed to hearing about. And he speaks to religious people, church people, through the elder brother. And what we're going to see is that Jesus rejects both irreligion and religion because both approaches to God, kind of like both brothers, are focused on me, on self. How can I get what I want. Both of these approaches value the Father only for what he can give, and both approaches avoid any kind of real relationship with God. So let's dig in and go first to the younger brother, beginning at verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. So this younger brother, he walks away from the traditions the religion, the path that he had grown up with. And the Bible says he seeks self-fulfillment in reckless living. That can mean a lot of things, but what is it that these folks are like? Let's paint a picture of irreligious folks, what we can learn from the younger brother. They tend to be free-spirited. 
independent. They make their own way. They don't follow anyone else's rules. Usually they're unchurched people. Sometimes they're even anti-church. And they tend to say something like, I'll find fulfillment wherever I choose to find it. That may mean devoting myself to my job or to fun or to sex or to making money or to success. Whichever, it's going to be my way, not my parents' way, by the way. And I'm going to find my identity and happiness there. I'm going to seek out what makes me happy. To God, these irreligious folks say, I prefer to make these other things my priority rather than you. They're where I'm going to look for fulfillment, not with you. I'd like your blessings, but I don't particularly want your rules. And to other people, they say, don't don't try to interfere with my freedoms. Please don't put your rules or your traditions or your expectations on me. Younger brother. That's one side of the ditch that people tend to fall into. As the story goes on, we see that he loses everything. He's starving. He has a plan where he's going to apologize, go back to his father, become a servant, and earn back his father's love. I think it's fascinating here how reformed younger brothers usually turn into elder brothers. You're going to see how that happens. So he practices his speech and he heads home. The father sees him and he races out, makes a total spectacle of himself. He runs out and notice he's doing this. The father's running out before the son has said anything. This is the principle of grace going before the son hasn't confessed he hasn't done he but the grace comes before he cuts off his son's speech don't be ridiculous you're not earning your way back into my heart you're already there he throws a party with the fattened calf big deal party the whole town's invited there's music there's dancing And it's wonderful. Jesus uses this part of the story to preach the gospel to the irreligious people in his audience, the tax collectors and sinners. And he gives the gospel, and and something you should always look for is when you hear the gospel, it's always about grace and truth. Grace and truth. Truth. The gospel truth for the irreligious is that if you want to follow other paths, if you want to seek fulfillment without God, you're not going to find fulfillment. You're going to find self-destruction. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that everything that the younger brother hoped to find by going into the far country, he discovered back home. Clothes, jewelry, friends, Great parties, a future, love. That's the gospel truth. Irreligion doesn't lead to self-fulfillment, but to self-destruction. The gospel grace says this, that the Father's love can forgive 
anything. If you've been horrible to your parents, if you've been wildly promiscuous, if you've been a drunk or a drug addict, if you've gone to jail, if you've committed adultery, if you've been divorced, it doesn't matter what you've done. God's love can forgive anything. Wipe out any sin. Heal any brokenness. Overcome anything. Now, if you're one of these younger brothers, you may be thinking that you need to avoid God for a while until you've cleaned up your act. You'd like to experience his forgiveness and his love and have a relationship with God that's real and satisfying. But God can't possibly approve of you the way you are. Then know this. He loves you just the way you are. But he's also willing to do the heavy lifting of making you more the person you want to be, the person he wants you to be. If you're a younger brother... You may also be thinking that you're fine with God, you like Jesus, but the church, not so much. You're worried that you're going to face disapproval from all those elder brothers in the church. Or worse, that you're going to be forced to become an elder brother yourself. And it is true, the church is full of elder brothers. But in the end, those older brothers are just broken people like you. And God offers you and them something much greater. If you're a younger brother, come on home. Because your father's waiting to wrap his arms around you. When this parable gets taught, it usually focuses focuses on this son, the the prodigal, the younger brother. But there's another son here, the elder brother. Let's pick him up in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So this elder brother comes home. Sees what's happening. Furious about the party and about his brother coming home. Says to his dad, I served you, I was obedient, did everything you ever asked of me, so you owe me. And I got nothing from you. Now this loser of a son of yours comes home and you throw a feast. Let's look at the elder brother. Religious people. Usually, these folks are are regular churchgoers. These are folks who say, I get my identity, I get my love, I get my approval from doing my best, from doing the right thing, from following the rules. They have a strong sense of duty. They do what they ought to do. They're solid citizens. They're pillars of the community. They have this strong sense of mutual obligation. And the unspoken message to God, although in the parable he speaks this, the unspoken message to God from the religious is, if I obey your laws, if I come to church, maybe if I serve as an elder or teach Sunday school, If I don't let anyone down, then I expect that you're going to love me and approve of me and make my life comfortable and happy. Because I deserve that. And to others, the elder brother says, buddy, you get what you work for. You get what you deserve, good or bad. In other words, the elder brother looks a lot like me, and probably a lot like you. But the father doesn't disown this brother either. He comes out to him. He invites him to swallow his pride and to come inside and join the party. This is really unexpected, what Jesus is doing. When the irreligious younger brother comes home, when he repents and, you know, comes and and the father throws a full-on party, he resolves the problem there, okay? But the problem with the older brother is left hanging, unresolved. The father graciously invites him to swallow his anger and pride, come into the party, and then, boom, the story ends. Jesus leaves it unresolved, as if to say to the scribes and the Pharisees, so what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do now? You know, it seems like Jesus was less concerned about reaching the free-spirited sinners. After all, they were kind of, you know, enthusiastically accepting his teaching. They were, 
you know, following him in herds. No, he was more concerned about reaching the religious people. The ones who systematically rejected his message of gospel, grace, and truth. Jesus knew that both approaches to life, both the younger brother's irreligious approach of individual fulfillment and the elder brother's religious approach of duty and obligation, that they were equally soul-killing. They both lead away from God. They both are efforts to manipulate God and keep control for themselves. But he also knew that while they may be equally soul-killing, the elder brother approach is ultimately more dangerous. Ask yourself, which is more dangerous? The armed criminal who walks down the street in broad daylight or the armed criminal who hides in ambush for you? Both can be equally deadly, but the hidden one is more dangerous because you don't see the danger. The elder brother's religious life is like that. It seems like I'm doing the right thing. I'm playing by the rules. I'm being obedient. The problem comes when my relationship is not a father-child relationship full of grace and gratitude, but a master-servant relationship, a contract, with each side expected to live up to the bargain. As long as I play by the rules, things seem fine. And I never see the danger. The turning point for the younger brother is that pig pen when he comes to his senses and and sees very clearly that he is lost and broken. The huge problem for you and me in the church is this. Most of us never get to the pig pen. Most elder brothers never see that we're just as lost and broken as the younger brother. And if we don't see the need for God to heal our brokenness, if we don't need to see, if we don't need God to give us undeserved love, then we just stay lost and broken. I may look fine on the outside, but on the inside... I'm more of a mess than anybody knows. And maybe you are too. So let me play out for you how this elder brother syndrome manifests itself. And see if any of it sounds like you. And again, let me ask that you look at yourself and not other people as we go through this. Elder brother syndrome. First, we older brothers are always busy. We keep doing and doing one more hour, doing whatever, working on the yard, on the job, uh, answering just one more email before I close my laptop. 
but it's never enough, and it's never good enough. Second, we often compare ourselves to other people. They're poor because they don't work hard enough, or they're not as smart as me. They're not nice people because they don't believe what I believe. They have addictions that I don't have because their willpower isn't strong enough. Because you get what you deserve. So we older brothers can become critical, a little bit self-righteous, a little bit judgmental. We have a hard time feeling compassion for people in trouble. They're getting what they deserve. You know, if only they'd work harder, if only they'd live a better life, if only they'd play by the rules. In other words, if only they were like me, things would be better. Third part of Elder Brother Syndrome, we may do good deeds out of a sense of duty and then find that there's no joy and no love in the process. Good deeds that should be loving and compassionate and joyful are done for the sake of compliance with the idea that something good is going to come back to me. This may show up in your personal devotions with God where it's easy to slip into a pattern of kind of begrudging duty. You know, okay, I've got to read my four chapters in my Bible reading plan and then pray for ten minutes. It also shows up in our marriages, where we do our duty with the expectation of something in return. I'll rub your back if you rub mine. Or I'll talk to you for 20 minutes when I get home, if we can get romantic later. The elder brother syndrome takes actions that should be rich with love and meaning and turns them into empty acts of duty or Quid pro quo. The next symptom of elder brother syndrome is that when things go wrong in our lives, because they're going to, we may not just get sad about it, we may also get angry, bitter, resentful. It becomes kind of important to place blame, you know, like our elder brother. That son of yours squandered our property with prostitutes? Blame. If we're satisfied with ourselves, if we're feeling pretty good about ourselves and things go wrong, then we blame God and we're angry with him because he owes me a better life. He should have protected me. Where were you, God, when my brother died? Why did you let my wife get cancer? Why is my kid so messed up when I've been so faithful to you? And if we're not feeling so good about ourselves, then we turn the blame and the anger inward. 
If I just work harder, if I just pray more, if I just exercise more, if I just read my Bible more and watch less TV, then things are going to be good. The next symptom of elder brother syndrome is that we usually feel the need to cover up our flaws. And we have a hard time being vulnerable. Because, you know, if people see my flaws, they're not going to love me. They're not going to approve of me. So I'm just going to pretend that everything is fine with me. And I'm going to get a little bit defensive when I hear anything that could be perceived as criticism. But I think the worst manifestation, the worst symptom of elder brother syndrome is not feeling loved by God. You know, if I've always won love and approval from other people by performing, then it should work that way with God, right? God becomes someone who's going to love me and approve of me for living right. Rather than God loving me freely just as I am in all the mess. But I'm a sinner. He sees my imperfections. I can't hide those from him. So realistically, how is it that God can love me? He seems distant. The relationship, unconnected. Our prayer lives become stale, dry. Focused on a to-do list, not on spending time with someone that we love. Our worship becomes what we do on Sunday morning. Instead of a passionate outpouring of praise for the God that we love and revere and who loves us. That's how elder brother syndrome manifests in individuals, but it also causes problems in families where the constant blaming can rob a family of its harmony where the judgmental unforgiveness can tear a family apart or where the sense of obligation can drain all the love and joy out of a marriage and the elder brother syndrome causes problems not just for individuals and Families, but also for churches. And churches, trivial issues can turn into divisions. And worship can become superficial. And moral superiority in church members can leave the younger brothers feeling judged and unwelcome. I have to tell you, personally, I used to be a younger brother like 30 years ago. But I'm the elder brother now. I, I really do get the forgiveness side of grace, but I really struggle with the unconditional love part. God loves me unconditionally. How is that possible? 
I've always earned love and approval and appreciation from people. Getting your grades in school. Getting accepted to the best schools. Doing a great job at work. Getting promoted on the fast track. Earning a lot of money. I mean, I earn love and approval, right? So shouldn't that also be true of God's love? I'm busy, busy, busy. How are you? Busy. Can't stop. So much to do. Nobody can do it but me. Always comparing myself to others. Tell you what, if you know me for more than a few hours, you're going to hear my whole resume. (laughs) And um, I don't get asked to be part of games at home anymore because if I'm not the best at it, I don't want to play. The closest I can get to understanding... God's unconditional love for me is to put myself in his place as a father and look at my love for my kids. And I know that no matter what they did, I would love them dearly anyway. So Jesus preaches the gospel to us as well. And I'll conclude with this gospel truth and gospel grace for us who are elder brothers. The gospel truth for us is that your performance doesn't determine your identity. Your performance doesn't determine your ability to be loved. When you've been a really good girl or a really good boy, God doesn't love you anymore. And when you've messed up, Royally, he doesn't love you any less. That's the truth. And the gospel grace for us elder brothers is that he loves us not because of our talents or our success or our devotion to him or how well we serve the church. He loves me and you just because you're his child. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. That even when we don't understand it, you love us unconditionally, deeply, completely, no matter what we've done. God, we thank you that we can be your children and that we can know the love of the ultimate father. We thank you for Jesus, the gospel of truth and grace that he brought us, the salvation that he died to give us.
And Father, I pray that anyone sitting in the sound of my voice right now who's an elder brother and doesn't know it or even a younger brother and doesn't know it, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, speak into that heart and call them home. In Jesus' name, amen.